It's 11 years and change since Nick Johnson's suicide. In 2018, his Big Dead Place website resurrected under his sister's initiative, but it's not staying put. Internet Archive, the Wayback Machine, scanned the site and made imperfect copies for posterity while it was up. Making copies of imperfect copies is better than no copies at all, but the record is glitchy, and many former links to essays filled with wonder and snark now 404, and I don't like the look that the abyss there is giving me. I preserved one interview from the site, retrieved from Modern Drunkard magazine, in $5 a month podcast hosting Amber, in episode 69, with assistance from Alex Carnum. I'm giving the same treatment here to one of my favourite articles from the site, without Alex's assistance, before it's lost to me forever, either by digital entropy on the one hand, or creeping senility robbing me of my internet hunter-gatherer instincts on the other. So I give you... In the words of others, too dead or too safely anonymous to contribute in person, how to climb Mount Erebus on your day off. An interview with Douglas Mosen. Because I don't do consistent voices other than my own, I'll pan the audio to the left for the interviewer, Nick, and to the right for the subject, Douglas. Many expeditioners and mountaineers have ascended Mount Erebus, and will again. They have or will arrive in droves to climb even more difficult peaks, such as Mount Lister or Vincent Massif or Mount Vincent. Their achievements are showcased in Outside Magazine or Rock and Ice, in which they detail their technical proficiencies, gear and strategies for the climbs. Douglas Mosen is a legendary figure in the lore of the program, because in 1991 he ascended to the peak of Mount Erebus by his slight technical skills, his proactive disregard of local policies, and with a bag of sandwiches from the galley. What is different about the typical Antarctic peak baggers versus Mosin is that the former don't have to be back on the clock the next day, working construction. Also, while other mountaineers may broadcast their achievements openly, either for fun or for funding, Mosin at the time barely peeped lest his job become suddenly unavailable. In short, whereas the classic line of asking a mountaineer why he climbs a mountain, with the reply, because it's there, might in this case be answered with the reply, because it's there and you could get caught, followed by a devilish snicker through the cigarette smoke. Mosin is a contractor who snuck out of McMurdo, ascended Mount Erebus and made it back in time for the Monday morning safety meeting. His achievement was first popularly acknowledged in Sarah Wheeler's Terra Incognita. This interview was recorded in January of 2008 in McMurdo. What is it that you did, first of all? I appropriated a snowmobile, got a large chunk of the way up Erebus, and then hoofed it the rest of the way. It was a long and complex chain of events. What were the things you had to do before you actually left? There were two people who knew, and I made quite sure they weren't going to be nervous and panic right away. A few years before, 
Three people had tried to go up Erebus in the winter, but they ran into bad weather and had to retreat. Unfortunately, they had told some of their roommates, and the roommates panicked and told search and rescue. As a result, when the storm subsided, search and rescue went for them and met the party coming back, all healthy and hearty. Had the roommates not been told, the party still wouldn't have made the climb, but they would have snuck back in unnoticed. I figured that if I got into any trouble on the mountain, there wasn't a snowball's chance in hell that it would make any difference anyway. So what the hell? In the summer, NSF parks the snowmobiles out by Scott Base, so that the science groups having projects within 15 miles or so can just grab their snowmobiles. But one science group never used them. Never. For some reason, they were assigned them, and no one seemed to notice that they never used them, except a few of us. The scientists left the key under the seat, which was easily figured out. So I took the snowmobile for a little ride, just a little one. The next weekend, I came back and looked at the odometer, and it hadn't changed. So the next weekend, I took it out a little farther. And the next weekend. The science party had no interest. So a few of us went out to Cape Evans and harassed Greenpeace. Actually, to party with them and drink wine. And I took it out to Hutton Cliffs a few times. That's a nice pickup line. You see a young lady and say, Do you want to go for a ride tonight? The first year I was here, before I knew it was even against the rules, I skied to Erebus, right down the peninsula, probably gained a thousand feet in elevation. I had various adventures on the way, so I knew that much of it. Then I took a run, following that route I knew, and went to 3,000 feet one weekend, also bringing a young lady along. And then, a little later, I and two unnamed accomplices took two snowmobiles up to 5,000 feet. How high is Erebus? Almost 13. So I had a good chunk of the beginning route reconnoitred. I had also been studying the route with my binoculars for several years, thinking about this. What did you take with you? I had a sleeping bag, some extra food. What kind of food? High protein packs? No, not mountaineering type stuff. All I had was a bunch of sandwiches wrapped in foil from the galley. It was a motley collection of clothes and food, a little bit of rope, crampons, and an ice axe that I didn't use. I didn't have a tent, I had no idea what was going to happen, and I didn't have access to real mountaineering gear, so it was just a collection of what I thought I might use. So what happened at tea-off time? I took off on Saturday night about nine o'clock, while everybody was getting drunk. Before, during the work week, I had driven out and filled up the snowmobile gas tank and got another five-gallon jerry can and put that on. I caught the shuttle to Scott Base, went out to the snowmobiles, threw the backpack in, fired it up, and went down the peninsula. I remember thinking, Oh my God, this is absolutely ridiculous. Why am I even attempting this? You get further out and you get more committed. You were planning to go to the top, right? or just as high as you could. I wanted to go as far as I could, but I had a reasonable expectation that making the top was possible, though everything would have to fall into place correctly. No weather or other problems. But I figured I had a reasonable shot, that it was feasible. So I got past where I had been before, and it became a little bit of a slope. It's a mountain. 
it's a mountain. So you've got to keep your engine speed up. You can't just slowly crawl. You have to keep moving. You have to root find and look for crevasses at speed. You can't go slowly and reconnoiter because you have to keep the engine power up just to keep going. So you could have fallen in a crevasse. I presume I could. Nowadays, when I look with binoculars and trace out my route, I can see a very big crevasse, which I presume I crossed. But at the time, I was going for it. I haven't been out a bit in the mountains. I'm not an absolute novice at predicting where the crevasses might be, but it's still kind of sticking your neck out. I wasn't totally blind. I had some vague idea of what terrain lines to follow, but I just kept it up, and gradually it began to get steeper and steeper, and it finally got to the point with the snowmobile where you can keep climbing, but you can also come straight down. On the steep slope, when you turn is when you're in danger of rolling. And I says, I think I better stop here and turn. I also wanted to make sure and point it downhill, rather than come back to it later to do the manoeuvre. So I stopped and sat there a while and thought, do you really want to do this thing? Were you freaking out? Not quite yet. Since I left at 9 o'clock, it was now about 2am in the morning. At this point, I was not necessarily going to go to the summit, but knew I could still climb for a couple of hours. So that's how you fake yourself into starting. The first stretch of it was medium soft snow, and then it switched to much harder snow. Then there were snow slopes, but with exposed ridges of rock. I stayed on the rock, and the ridge of rock would end, and I could usually get to another by traversing horizontally to the next one. Rather than climbing on the snowfield, I felt more comfortable climbing up on the rock. When did you know that you were actually going to go to the summit? Well, I just kept going on, and it began to get more tiring. After a little bit, it was about one step per breath. Then it moved to about two steps per breath. The weather was still perfect. There was no wind. It was perfectly clear. It was so warm I had to leave my jacket open. It might have been zero, but when you're exerting yourself, that's warm. I probably started climbing about three in the morning, and the more I climbed, the more the terrain opened around me, and the view just kept getting better. When I saw a big bluff of rock coming out, I said, when I get to that, I'll reevaluate." I got to that about nine in the morning, where I laid down for about 40 minutes and tried to nap. I had decided to turn around at noon in order to get back to town on time, but I could see that I was not going to make it at the rate I was going. So at this little outcrop where I'd taken my nap, I knew either I was not going to make it, or I had to pick up my pace. So I dropped my backpack with all my survival equipment, took a bottle of water and the camera, and started up the rest of the way. How much farther did you have to go? Probably about 1,500 vertical feet, and a couple of miles horizontally, so at that point, you were mixed about whether to continue? At that point, I was really mixed. I said, if you drop your backpack and go on, you are really committed. Up to this time, I said, well, I'm getting higher and it's nice, but I can always turn around and go back. It was a mixed feeling. I said, I will regret it all my life if I give up. And actually, you might have gone too far. But at that moment, I said, you know what? I really don't give a damn. I think I'm going to go for it. By that time, I was getting about four breaths per every step. 
I was very tired and semi-hallucinating, seeing things move out of the corner of my eye. Tell me about that. As I kept climbing, there were rocks and boulders, and many of them resembled human shapes. Somebody is watching me. I had a feeling that somebody or something was watching me, that there was some other presence there. As you're going up, you can't see the peak. There's just a snow slope ahead of you, and it goes on and on. Even though I dropped the pack, I was looking at my timeline and thinking I would not be able to do it. And then it began to level off. There's a shoulder, then a flatter area, before the central inner cone, and it began to level off. And I came over the shoulder, and for the first time, I could see the central cone. And directly above the central cone was the full moon. That was a sign. It was. I looked at the full moon above the central cone and I said, I'd like to make this bastard. It's almost like a welcome sign. Because I was full of trepidation and doubt. Tired and beat and way out there and out on a limb. But when I could see the central peak and the moon above it, when you get up to that level, you can start to see a little bit across the other side. And it was all blue with water. Then I went on. I walked across the flatter area to the central cone. Dude, you're standing there alone at the top of Mount Erebus with no helos. And the volcanic rocks, these volcanic bombs have splattered. And because of the sulphur or other residues or something, the rocks have a little more colour. Greens and yellows and reds and oranges are on the ground. And I stopped and began to pick a few Erebus crystals. That's when I moved my turnaround time back. And then I got to the central cone, where it was scree, loose rock. Slide back a half step for each step up, and that was real miserable. But by then, I was going for it no matter what. Up and up and up. Then, instead of seeing it at a 45 degree angle ahead of you, it was 35 degrees, then 30. Then I saw a footprint for the first time, and a few other tracks. From the time you see rock in front of your face, and then nothing in front of your face, it's about four steps. Boom. All of a sudden, you're on top. I had a very profound emotion at the top. I didn't have to climb anymore. Not satisfying the goal, not seeing the top, but just not having to goddamn climb anymore. Relief. So you'd been up for 30 hours at this time? 30 hours or more. It was probably about 1 or 2 in the afternoon on Sunday at that time. Then I got a little bit of enthusiasm and I walked all the way around the rim. About halfway around the other side, there was no trail, and the terrain began to get a little odd, with rough terrain. And that's where all the fumaroles were, coming up in all strange shapes, and by now, I'm in full hallucination mode, and they looked like creatures moving. This was a continuation. I definitely had this feeling there was something else there, and I was being watched, and whatever entity was watching me was, at the very best, neutral. The most optimistic was neutral. That it didn't give a damn whether I lived or died. But sometimes it was slightly hostile. The very best feeling I had was that it didn't care at all. Did you have other thoughts about it being worse? There were times when I could feel a sense of, what are you doing here? Do you think it's possible that the universe is malevolent? Basically, yes. I think it's at best neutral, and somewhat of a if you think you're good enough, then try it, but it's a little bit of a challenge. 
I've kind of always had that impression of the universe. It's not an immensely warm-hearted, welcoming one. Though when I saw the full moon above the crater, there was a slight touch of semi-welcome, a slight gesture of a friendliness. Maybe it was taunting you. I think it may have been a tease. A bait. Like those flowers that look so nice that eat insects that come near. Then I continued around and I was stumbling, and the ground was rougher, and I thought, here's where you have made your error. You're going to sprain an ankle on the rocks, and then you're really going to be pickled. I never would have made it after that. I didn't even have a radio. So I'm doing my circumnavigation, and finally encounter my tracks where I had come up. I started back down. Going down was a little easier. I was able to take one step for every breath on the descending. But you're still wrecked at this point? Ah, I was still fried. I was stumbly wrecked. I found my pack where I'd left it, and I started down. As I was going down the rock ridges, I could sit on my butt, but I had to do the reverse on the ice fields, and this was getting pretty shaky. One time, I slipped, so lying on my belly, I dug in my ski poles, and probably slid 150 feet before I stopped. I was thinking, my god, this is humorous, because the slope was two or 3,000 feet if I hadn't stopped myself and I eventually stumbled my way to the snowmobile with this nagging thought. Is it going to start? It started, much to my relief. On the way up, it had been perfectly clear, and the view was magnificent. But during my time up there, a cloud deck had moved in, with the tops of the clouds at about 6,000 feet. So I was still up in the clear blue, but it was all white carpet below. Going down... I'm glad I found my tracks, because when I got in the clouds, I couldn't see more than a hundred feet. So I just concentrated on following my tracks, because I couldn't see anything else. Eventually, at about two thousand feet, I came out of the clouds, near room with a view, and then just proceeded back, totally fried. So, did you just park the snowmobile and catch the shuttle? As I was coming back by the Kiwi ski hill, I was like, you're entering human territory again. And despite the state of mind you're in, you have to actually relate to human beings. You had something like an acid trip. The whole thing was very similar to a 24-hour acid trip. Absolutely amazing. So I pulled back into the snowmobile parking lot, shut it off, got my backpack and waved down a shuttle I saw coming down the road. Now it's about 9 o'clock on a Sunday night. There was some young lady driving the shuttle and I sort of stumbled in there and I remember her looking at me oddly, but she didn't say anything. I don't know what I looked like, but I must have looked pretty ridiculous. Really bad. And she looked at me several times like, what have you been doing? Then I got dropped off at the dorms and went to bed. Did you tell anyone afterwards? Afterwards, a few select people. I told the two people who knew I'd gone, and the next day, I told some of the people who knew that the snowmobiles were unattended. And I did notice that the next year, the snowmobiles were parked in front of the chalet and locked up. I wonder why. So you really didn't need any accomplices for this at all? I didn't need anyone's help. I didn't really want anyone's help. It's much easier to keep things discreet when nobody else knows. There's no point in blabbing beforehand. Afterwards, you're sort of justifying it. Well, bragging a little bit. It was kind of fun because if you pulled one of those off, you kind of got to be put on the inside 
and then people would exchange more information with you. Then, during ASA's time, they realised that if they sponsored more official boondoggles, they could cut down on some of this. Have there been any repercussions from your trip? There have been no repercussions. Although, at the time, if I happened to encounter some of the mid-level managers of the bar and be sitting next to them, some would say to me in a side voice, You know, Mosin, you really can't do that shit anymore. And then give me a thumbs up sign. It is, in part, because legends like Douglas Mosin keep their achievements quiet, that wankers like Brian Grant reckon there's something special for getting a blowjob in Scott's discovery hut. I wouldn't ever attempt a stunt of this nature, and if I found out about someone doing something of this nature under my leadership, they'd get a thorough reaming. But I applaud the go-large-or-go-home approach to breaking rules and smashing taboos. Douglas Mosin's effort makes every other transgression I've heard about in Antarctica seem petty. Since I'm publishing other people's words in this episode, I'm going to give you the introductory chapter of Jeff Maynard's most recent book, The Frontier Below. It's got almost nothing to do with Antarctica, but it's phenomenal. And Jeff's generosity to the series and sustained efforts to raise up Hubert Wilkins' legacy warrant attention in just about everything he does. He is probably the coolest person I know. The book took him two years to write, and it is the definitive history of people working underwater. The introductory chapter features prose that maps the depths with a poetry I've never before encountered, and I'm really grateful that he sourced the talking book introductory chapter for me Not only because it saves you having to hear more of my voice, it also saves me having to record. The Frontier Below is available from William Collins Publishers, and I'll link to as much of Jeff's online presence as I can at the WordPress page associated with this episode. Introduction. One giant plunge for mankind. Whether we fly over it, sail across it, or simply stand on a shore to stare at it, the ocean appears immense. We must remember that what we are seeing is not really the ocean, but merely the entrance to it. When we pass through that entrance, something remarkable happens. The moment water covers our mouth and nostrils, our heart rate slows. It is as if our bodies remember that millions of years ago life began in the ocean, And now, if we return to it, we will need to conserve oxygen. This response to being submerged is known as the diving reflex, and it is found in all mammals and exhibited strongly in aquatic ones, such as seals, otters and whales. But any welcome that we humans experience in our return to water is short-lived. If we hold our breath and attempt to swim downward, we feel a force pushing us back to the surface. The Archimedes principle, supposedly discovered when the Greek mathematician lowered himself into his bath and noticed the water rising as he submerged, says an upward or buoyant force is exerted on a body immersed in fluid equal to the weight of the fluid that the body displaces. Should we devise a way to overcome our positive buoyancy and continue our descent, we are unable to breathe. 
Despite our slower heart rate reducing the oxygen supplied to our body cells, we will die in a few minutes when the involuntary action of gasping will fill our larynx with water and deprive our lungs of air. If we attempt to breathe air from the surface through a tube, we immediately discover it is impossible to inhale. Once our bodies are fully submerged, the tiny rib muscles are not strong enough to push out against the weight of the water. When diving, even to 20 feet, or 6 metres, we experience excruciating pain in the ears. The weight of the water pushes on the outside of our eardrums, which are thin flaps of skin stretched tight in our ear canals. Unless we somehow relieve the pressure, our eardrums will burst inward, leaving us partially deaf. When this happens, we will be about 33 feet or 10 metres underwater, and the pressure on our bodies is twice what they are used to. Doubling the pressure on our lungs means they will be compressed to half their usual size. The air in them will be at twice the pressure we normally breathe. That air consists of approximately 20% oxygen and 80% nitrogen. If we continue to go deeper, breathing compressed nitrogen will have adverse physiological effects on us. Somewhere in the vicinity of 100 feet or 30 metres, we will begin to experience nitrogen narcosis. It affects our judgment, and unless we return to the surface, we risk hallucinating or doing something rational, such as attempting to breathe like fish. Meanwhile, our lungs, now under an additional three atmospheres of pressure, have compressed further. If we somehow contrive to breathe compressed air to equalise the weight of the water, the nitrogen in that air will become liquid and be forced into our body tissue. If we stay at 100 feet, this will continue to happen until our body tissue is saturated with nitrogen. If we return to the surface too quickly, the compressed nitrogen, suddenly relieved of the pressure, will bubble out into our bloodstream. The bubbles will congregate in our joints and cripple us, or reach our heart and kill us. All this happens if we manage to reach 100 feet in an ocean with an average depth of 12,000 feet, or 3.7 kilometres, and is, in places, more than 35,000 feet, or 7 miles, or 10.7 kilometres deep. We can, of course, invent a vessel to protect us from the water pressure and seal ourselves inside it. Knowing, as we do now, that we inhale oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide, we will need to invent a way to supply our bodies with oxygen and remove the carbon dioxide within our sealed vessel. And it will need to be incredibly strong. As we go deeper, the water pressure will increase until, at the bottom of the ocean, our protective shell will have more than seven tons pressing on each square inch of its surface, or more than a metric ton on each square centimetre. The smallest flaw in our engineering will see the vessel crushed like an egg under the wheel of a truck. Any vessel built to withstand such crushing force will, by design, be extremely heavy. If it is dropped in the ocean with a person inside, it will have no problem sinking to the bottom. Getting it back to the surface will be another matter. Life began in the ocean and crawled onto the land. 
It evolved until around two million years ago, as small, almost human great apes, we walked out of Africa. We grew taller, developed larger brains, learned to use tools, and controlled fire. We drew pictures and felt emotion. We learned to protect ourselves from or kill larger or more vicious animals. We spoke. We continued walking, or sometimes sailing short distances, until we had circled the globe and populated every continent except Antarctica. We were attracted back into the water to gather food, please our gods, retrieve items of value, wage war, explore, seek adventure, or to understand the nature of the world beyond the surface of the ocean, which blankets seventy percent of our tiny planet. Our return to the ocean was not easy, but we are inventive creatures, and just as we learn to leave the earth in hot air balloons, airplanes, and rockets. We also learn to survive the lack of breathable air and the crushing weight of water to travel downward, eventually reaching the bottom of the ocean in the same decade as we walked on the moon. But only twelve people have walked on the moon between 1969 and 1972, and fifty years elapsed before the cost of the technology had decreased and the desire to exploit the moon's resources had increased. To levels where nations felt it worthwhile to return and stake their claims. Exploration is always followed by exploitation, but there is often a gap between the two because the first is driven by passion, which is focused and irrational, while the second carefully weighs costs against benefits. It is the same with the seabed. The deepest point of the ocean was reached in January 1960. Fifty-two years elapsed before filmmaker James Cameron returned. As I am writing this, the Chinese state-run news agency Xinhua is reporting the Chinese deep submersible vehicle Fendoge is exploring the bottom of the Mariana Trench. Yi Song, the chief designer of the manned vehicle, told the news agency that high-tech diving equipment could help draw a treasure map. Of the bottom of the ocean, which is abundant with resources, in particular the rare earth minerals that are a critical component of computer technology. The world's superpowers, along with other states, are developing autonomous underwater vehicles (AUVs), which are fundamentally underwater drones. Many people believe that AUVs are the future of warfare because they are cheap to produce, difficult to detect. And just as drones can replace airplanes to remotely attack enemies from the air, AUVs can replace or supplement submarines underwater. Meanwhile, environmentalists are sounding alarms about the depletion of fish stocks, the dangerous levels of plastic in the ocean, and the harm caused to underwater ecosystems by rising temperatures. Despite this destruction, economists are predicting the ocean economy. Ocean-based industries, combined with the assets and resources provided by marine ecosystems, will double in size in the coming decade. There can be no doubt that the ocean is crucial to our survival on this planet, but we can only address the issues that confront it when we think beyond the surface. More than two hundred years ago, in Child Harold's pilgrimage. 
His poem of a disenchanted young man wandering a devastated world after the Napoleonic Wars, Lord Byron wrote, Roll on, thou deep and dark blue ocean roll. Ten thousand fleets sweep over thee in vain. Man marks the earth with ruin, his control stops with the shore. Byron was wrong. Our control has never stopped at the shore. But because we cannot easily see past the entrance, we have always taken comfort in expecting that all was well in that world. It isn't. So how do we see more? How do we expose our thinking to this critical subject? I contend that appreciating where we are going will be enhanced by understanding where we have been. This book is a record of human exploration downward, from the surface to the bottom of the ocean. With history as our vehicle, I hope you will dive into a new realm of understanding. My primary motive is to entertain and inform with a little-known story of human endeavour. My secondary motive is to stimulate awareness of the future on a foundation of knowledge of the past. In an attempt to give the reader a clearer understanding of the vertical journey we are about to take, I have divided this book into four sections, each corresponding with an ocean zone. It is important to realise the diagrams that illustrate the ocean zones in books and websites are misleading. They are invariably drawn out of proportion. The upper epipelagic zone is always illustrated larger to accommodate its enormous variety of life. In reality, it is tiny when compared with the other zones. Therefore, I offer another way to envision the ocean zones. Imagine you are standing with your feet in the deepest part of the ocean and with the top of your head at sea level. As the tide rises and falls, the difference in water level is roughly equivalent to the thickness of two or perhaps three strands of your hair. Now, let's travel down from the surface. We first enter the epipelagic zone, which takes its name from the Greek epi, meaning surface, and pelagos, meaning sea. The epipelagic zone is also known as the sunlit zone, because sunlight penetrates the water and brings life to photosynthetic plankton, which converts carbon dioxide into energy. The Earth's rainforests are not, as some people have stated, the lungs of the world. The epipelagic zone is. It produces up to 80% of our oxygen. It is also home to 90% of ocean life, including the most recognisable forms such as whales, dolphins, fish, sharks and jellyfish. As we stand in our ocean and continue down, about halfway between the top of our skull and the top of our ears, we leave the epipelagic zone and enter the mesopelagic zone. This zone, like the others, takes its name from the Greek meso, meaning middle. But we are a long way from the middle, or even the average depth of the ocean. The mesopelagic zone is sometimes called the twilight zone, because the last faint rays of light from a sun high in the sky are fading by the time they reach the top of this zone. Vertebrates and invertebrates live here in darkness, with many of them swimming upwards at night to feed. Some plant life also survives here. 
On our submerged body, somewhere between the bottom of our nose and the top of our mouth, we leave the mesopelagic zone and enter the bathypelagic zone. Bathy means deep. This zone is in perpetual darkness. No plant life lives here. Some waterborne organisms are luminescent to attract prey or a mate. Many species here are totally blind, and most live on the detritus that falls from the higher zones. Just below the bottom of our sternum, before we reach our navel, we enter the abyssopelagic zone. Abyss means seemingly bottomless. The water is high in oxygen, but low in nutrients. There is very little discernible life, and the water is cold. About 37 degrees Fahrenheit, or 3 degrees Celsius. Chemosynthetic bacteria thrive near hydrothermal vents in the abyssopelagic zone. What fish and invertebrates do live here feed on these bacteria. This, in a sense, is ground zero in the food chain. To stand in the deepest part of the ocean, we need to stand in one of the trenches between the tectonic plates. In our imaginary exercise, we are standing in the Mariana Trench located off the Mariana Islands in the Pacific Ocean. Trenches are extremely narrow. The one we are standing in begins at our groin. In the 1950s, scientists began to notice distinct life in the trenches and started referring to them as the Hadal Zone. A Greek derivative again, but whereas the names of the zones above indicate where in the ocean they are located, the Hadal Zone was named to signify what? Welcome to hell. Let us begin our journey. How good was that? And how good is publishing an episode I did three-fifths of nothing to bring about? I don't always publish other people's words exclusively, but when I do, they're chosen very, very carefully. Take care and appreciate your coffee, and furthermore, I consider that Carthage must be destroyed and that Hadley Mission is the reason that we can't have nice things. Mm-hmm.